problem, but uh, if it isn't solved relatively soon, I think we need to start looking for another carrier that might not be having the same difficulties that they are because we do want to get you on. And that was our problem today, getting started late. <coughs> we just uh, couldn't get on the phone service. So we finally did, and here we are. I hope you didn't have the same trouble we did or were patient enough to wait until we got on. Uh, one thing I'll mention, I, I put out the calendar here some months ago, and uh, we have with it a sheet entitled Important Calendar Dates for 2016, and I must have hit the wrong key uh, on the second one down on the right-hand column, with the fourth, fourth line down on the right-hand column. I've got Feast of Tabernacles and Last Great Day listed as from the 12th to the 22nd. That would be a 10-day feast. <laughs> it actually should be the 15th to the 22nd, although there is precedence for keeping it an extra, extra day, so I guess we could. It's, it's correct on the calendar itself, but on that sheet I, I had a typo. I might also mention that uh, Grace Tainer uh, is in the Hurricane Rehab Center now. Uh, from what I have been told, uh, she has a malignancy uh, in her abdomen, as well as some pretty severe blood clots in her leg, and uh, also a little bit in her lungs. As a and they say, apparently, that's a result of the, the tumor itself that the clots are forming. So uh, Grace is uh, in quite a bit of trouble physically, and I, I think we should all certainly be praying for her that God give her rest and comfort and strength and his healing as he sees fit. So keep, uh, keep Grace in your prayers if you would. Now, last week I started into the subject of how God feels toward us and we went through several scriptures indicating that he has a very kindly approach toward us, a very positive approach, even saying that it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And even as John 3.16, which is used by the Protestant world and overused and misused in some respects, where it says that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that we might not perish, but those that believe on him would have eternal life. So, when he created mankind, he very, very much had a purpose in mind, and he is successful as a God and as a Father. <clears throat> he even tells us in Romans 11:26 that all Israel shall be saved. He's speaking in general terms there. We know there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but it will be a small amount of people, not a great number of people. His plan and his purpose is to work it out so that most people ultimately will be saved. So he will be a successful God and a successful Father. We need to grasp and understand that. It's hard for us to understand, I think, sometimes when we're living in a, in a world dominated and thus far ruled by Satan and by his nature and by human nature, which falls into Satan's nature in very close sync and rhythm and harmony pretty well. So uh, it's a world we live in that's almost devoid of God, and he is allowing this for his purposes for the time being, but he has a plan of salvation that is ultimately going to see the vast majority of mankind that's ever lived a part of the kingdom of God 
and Satan will not be around. So we wound up in the book of Hebrews, and I made it through three verses, <laughs> uh, ending with the thought in verse 3 that Christ has been speaking to us through the New Testament apostles, and uh, when he had finished his job here on this earth, he went back to his Father in heaven. And let's read verse 3 again. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholds all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So Christ went right back to the throne of his Father in heaven and sat down uh, with his majesty. But he had done something beyond our comprehension. He, as God, had given that up, had come and lived as a human being, and had never sinned in 33 and a half years of life. Uh, the best record by far of any human being who has ever lived. So he and his death as God was more important than all of our lives put together and more important than all of our sins so that by his perfection, by his death and paying the penalty of sin, uh, we can avoid the penalty of sin through his blood. We are very lives, physically and spiritually, to our Redeemer, uh, the Son of God, our Savior. Now let's go on in this context, because Paul is speaking here to the Hebrews, most of whom had not accepted Christ, did not understand the relationship between the Father and the Son, and perhaps even though this was very likely written more to the Hebrew converts, even they may have had trouble understanding the relationships and what had actually occurred when Christ was walking the face of the earth. So he explains God's attitude. He explains what the Father and the Son did together for us. And as we get into this a little more, I, I find it truly amazing when I consider the book of Hebrews that a comment was, was made to me one time by someone who had, I went, who had heard me go through the book of Hebrews some years ago and uh, said, that was the most boring series of sermons I have ever heard you give. And maybe it was. But it wasn't because of the content. If it was, it was me. It wasn't the content. <laughs> Uh, that same individual was just enthralled with the Minor Prophet series and listened to it over and over and over and over again till he wore the tapes out, I think, and thought that was fascinating because it showed what's happened to the church and what's going to be. But to me, the book of Hebrews is one of the most inspiring books in the entire Bible because it explains so much about the Father and the Son and their attitude toward us and thereby what our attitude toward them should be. So let's look at this more as part two of this same series. I, I entitled it God's Attitude Toward Us, but as we go through, you can see that his attitude toward us should very deeply affect our attitude toward him. So it really works hand in hand. 
Anyway, let's go to verse 4 of Hebrews 1. Being made so much better than the angels, or so much higher than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The angels were created beings. Christ had always been, along with his Father. And they had together, Christ being the one doing the actual creating of mankind on the earth, made this earth the way it is, recreated it to look like it does, made it hospitable for mankind overall. The Garden of Eden was hospitable in every way. When they were kicked out of there, they encountered thorns and bad soil and, <laughs> and difficulties by the sweat of their brow as a punishment. But God made us a very, very friendly environment down here. But Christ, having been God himself, a God, one of the two, uh, was higher than the angels who were created beings who were there basically as servants to God and to wait on him, to praise him, to glorify him, to sing at his throne as a heavenly choir, if you will. Uh, they had been created essentially as servants. So he was made, or was, made better than them by his inheritance, by being uh, uh, given, again, what he had before, but now with something added. Not just the angels and the 24 elders about the throne, but with the potentiality of having more beings there who will be raised to the same level as the Father and the Son. Now, that is explained in the book of Hebrews better, probably, than anywhere else in the Bible, of what he has actually created us to be. And the great plan of God and the mystery explained here that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians and Thessalonians and various other places, even toward the end of the book of Revelation. But, but he lays it out here of what the purpose and plan for mankind ultimately is. So he was for a, a while lower, as we shall see, than the angels, and then he was made much higher again through inheritance. He inherited, as a result of his obedience here on this earth, not only the earth, but the universe. Now, Satan had been given, we understand, uh, rulership over the earth. And when he rebelled against God... Uh, he became a darkened being, full of sin and hatred and vengeance, maliciousness, uh, anger, bitterness, and all those ungodly uh, attitudes and traits that he had and which he has so uh, diligently laid upon mankind so that we follow very, very much in his footsteps. But Christ, in defeating Satan there in the temptation... Uh, qualified all over again to rule the universe. He had an adversary, and that adversary had to be defeated. So Christ had to be made lower than the angels, and he was also lower than Satan. Do we realize that? Is that a concept we've ever even thought of? He was here to die. He gave up being God. And as a human being, he was made lower in power than the angels. He was made lower in power than Satan. 
Now, he wasn't made lower in conduct, don't get me wrong, but he was made lower. And when Satan took him to a high mountain and put him on top of the temple, he had greater power as a being by far than Christ did as a human being. The only power Christ had, which was stronger, was that he had fasted 40 days and nights and was so close to the Father that he was filled with the Spirit of God, and it was the Spirit of God through him that was capable of defeating Satan. I don't think I'd ever really thought that through before this moment. But he was made lower in power and form and strength and in every way than even Satan at the time. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now the angels, we can read about in Daniel and other places, very, very powerful beings who can go from God's throne to here in a millisecond, who have power against Satan, a power that we don't have, at least they're equal in rank, the archangels, the cherubs, and uh, to Satan. But as far as power is concerned, Satan still has the kind of power that he had as a cherub that covered. And he could withstand one of the archangels, but not two. So Satan is a very, very powerful being, and so are the cherubs and all the angels that are about God's throne. But he hasn't at any point said to any of the angels, You're my son. Come sit at my right hand. Never has. That's remarkable when we consider some of the things that are about to be said here. And again, when he brings in the first begotten into the world, he said, And let all the angels of God worship him. Remember, Christ was the first begotten and the firstborn of many brethren. So we are set to become brethren of Christ. He the first begotten. We have since been begotten. And we are in the embryo stage preparing to be born into the kingdom of God. So even though he was on the earth, he was still the begotten son of God. And even there, he was in that sense in potential higher than the angels because of what he would become again. He was God on earth. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So the angels do have great power. Oh, they can be a flame of fire. But under the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. There are those who argue that there's only one being who is God. Uh, made a huge deal about it even in the church of God. I've never bought that at all. Uh, there is a God family, and the Father and the Son are both members. And here he says, your throne, O God, speaking of Christ is forever and ever. So it is the God family with two beings. There's only one God, yes. One God family. But there are two beings in it, and there will be more. We'll see that. 
You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Well, there is the attitude that Christ had, the attitude that we have to come to have, to truly love righteousness and hate sin or wickedness or any kind of wrongdoing according to the rules and the laws of God. Therefore God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. Now, he put Christ here, made him human for a time, and then he intended to raise him back to being his son in heaven, not just his son on the earth. Now, notice he has anointed him with which oil? This is a very interesting statement. He anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. Remember what we read, and I quoted at the beginning here again today, it is my good pleasure to give you the kingdom, speaking to us. So, there was no grudging involved. There was no minimal attitude by God at all. He anointed him with the oil of gladness. He was so happy. Even he says, he said of Christ at one point, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And he wants us to attain to that same level in his mind and attitude. Now, he already has it for every human being that he has created on this earth. Remember we read also last week, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. So his attitude toward every human being that has ever been born or aborted is that they would be a part of his kingdom someday. That is his whole attitude and approach to human beings. Do we at times anger him? Yes. <laughs> Do we sometimes try his patience? Frequently. Um, but his anger only lasts for a moment. He does not retain it because he loves us so much. And even those that he was so angry with in the day of Noah that he killed in the flood will be in the great white throne judgment without Satan around, and they will have an opportunity at becoming uh, a part of the kingdom of God. Not as high as those who qualify during this lifetime, but they will certainly be sons in the kingdom of God. So even those with whom he was so overwrought have not lost out on the opportunity at eternal life. So God is very forgiving. His mercy endures for a day or two at least. No, it's forever. And his plan shows that. Even in Revelation 20, it says that rest of the, they have those who are resurrected at his coming, 144,000 of them, that's all. And the rest of the dead lived not till a thousand years was over. And they come up to have an opportunity to live a life and to be judged over time just as we have. But with the Spirit of God and the rule and the reign of Christ, not the world that we live in today, which makes it very, very difficult to follow God, even if we have the mind to, because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. So hard as we may try, we have difficulty. And part of a lot of that is Satan, and a lot of it is the nature that God put in us on purpose 
so that we would have to strive against it. As I said some time back, God could have given us any kind of nature he so desired. He could have given us the loving, tender, kind, uplifting spirit of the angels. Could he not? He created them with that attitude. He could have given us the very same attitude. And we could have been loving and sweet and kind and nice and never want to go against God in any way and have the kind of uplifting mind that we'd all like to have. But God gave us this deceitful, desperately wicked mind, Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us, that is contrary to God. He did that on purpose. Can you imagine that, that God would give you the kind of mind you've got on purpose? Well, he did. And the reason he did was he had given Satan an uplifting, good, positive mind when he created him. But somehow, some way, vanity began to enter the picture and pride, and Satan was perverted and corrupted and then wound up in rebellion against God. Now, God wants us to be higher than Satan ever was as an anointed cherub that covered the throne of God. But he does not ever want another rebellion in heaven. So instead of giving us a sweet, loving, uplifting nature, he gave us a dark, sinning, deceitful, wicked nature. That's what we have as a human being. God says so. It doesn't mean there isn't a kind, loving side to people to some degree, and we can be taught a certain amount of civilization. But at best, the best civilizations that man develops under Satan here break down and fall apart just as ours is today. God gave this to us so that we might have to resist and go against our very nature. He made us to have to live with this for roughly 70, 80, 90 years. As human beings that don't want to obey God. I find it interesting that he started out with a lifespan of human beings on the earth of roughly a thousand years approaching it. And then immediately after the flood, he shut it down to about 500, and then to 250, and then... He finally got it down to about 70. I guess he figured to have that kind of mind, about 70 years is plenty. <laughs> it don't need any more than that. Uh, because life can become very, very wearisome under the conditions that human beings have to live with on this earth. So he says, that's sufficient. I think, I think if they go through that much uh, and they resist it, and they follow my ways in spite of themselves, I don't think they'll ever rebel once they have their nature and their mind changed. So he did this to us on purpose. We need to realize that, understand that, and then fight with all our heart, mind, body, and soul to resist our nature and to become like Christ who loved righteousness and hated iniquity. So he laid the foundation of the earth, verse 10, and the heavens are the works of his hands. They shall perish, but you remain. So, even though the earth and everything that's been created and polluted, and mankind has polluted the earth terribly, 
and they're trying to pollute the universe along with it, doing our best to. Uh, God said, well, what you've done down there is going to perish. The earth isn't. Uh, the, the scriptures that say, that people think, say the earth is going to all be burned completely up and recreated, don't understand and don't put all the scriptures together. Yes, it's going to be recreated like it was in Genesis 1 again. It'd be beautiful again after our pollution. But what he has created down here uh, has been polluted and that will perish. But no matter what perishes, what has to go, Christ is going to remain. That's the point that is being made, not how much damage will be done to the earth and how much will be recreated, but that no matter whatever else there is, we look at this earth and we want to stand on good, solid, firm ground, don't we? We like the earth that God made for us. He says, even though that perished, he would remain. And then he compares it to a garment. They shall all wax old as does a garment. A garment gets worn, it gets frayed, it gets shiny, uh, where it isn't much count anymore. And as a vesture, like a coat or a suit or something, like clothing, you shall fold them up and they shall be changed. So he's going to recreate, he's going to rebuild, he's going to change, put new clothing, new uh, wrapping on the earth. But you are the same, and your years shall not fail. So even what is down here may get old, it may be being depleted, misused, and abused, but God is not. He will be there forever. He's not human, he's not physical, he's not subject to pollution. But, to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? None of them. The disciples were way out of line when they said to Christ, let us sit on your right and your left hand. That's given to the Father. And Christ himself is sitting at the right hand of God. So, he didn't say to any of the angels, as glorious as they are, certainly higher than us uh, by far, uh, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? The angels, as he'll explain in a moment, are higher than we are at the moment, but we have been made to be heirs of the earth and heirs of the universe. So they are sent here not only as the servants of God, but they are sent here to serve and to minister to us. As pitiful and weak as we are, and even if we've been called to the truth of God, he said he calls the weak and base of the earth. Not many mighty and noble are called. So we came from the base, the not as intelligent, the not as trained, the not as moral, the not as noble in any means as some are on the face of this earth. Haven't you run into a lot of people in your lifetime that are far more intelligent, smarter, more capable than you are? I have. I see them all the time. <laughs> better memories, better thinking capacities, better uh, ability to do things. God didn't call those with great ability. He called those with 
very little ability for the most part, said so. But as weak and small as we are, he made the, the angels to be our servants. Let's understand that. Uh, I could cite the case of Daniel who prayed for an answer from God, and God sent an angel to give him an answer. But it 20, took 21 days of him fasting before the answer came through because he had been resisted by Satan. But that angel was used to carry a message to Daniel. I happened to think of one when I was reading that again this morning in Second Kings 6. We were there not too long ago when we went through talking about the life of Elijah, Elijah and Elisha. I'm going to go back to that one for a moment. Second Kings 6. Here, uh, Elisha had, as Elijah had been his mentor, and then Elisha was given extra spirit beyond what even Elijah had had. But here there was trouble from the Syrians, and in uh, verse 16, Elisha said to those that were around him who were afraid, they were afraid what the Syrians were going to do to them. They were going to be defeated and killed. So Elisha answered, it said, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now, those that were with Elisha looked around, and there weren't many of them. And then they looked at the Syrians who were arrayed against them and said, Man, they are far, far greater in might and strength and armaments and numbers than we are. So it must have gone through their mind for a moment there very quickly. Can't Elisha count? <laughs> you know, I look out there and I see a sea of Syrians and there's just a few of us. And Elisha says there's more of us and there are more of them. And more of us than them. The guy's crazy. So what did Elisha do? Elisha prayed and said, Eternal, I pray you, uh, open his eyes that he may see. I guess it's just an individual, not a bunch. Open the eyes of the young man who was there. And he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. So, this young man couldn't see them. But we've read about the chariots of fire there in Ezekiel 5. And Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire. I suspect the two witnesses may be as well, because the analogy is there and in the prophecies. But they were all around. God had sent an array of angels to fight the battle. So the young man couldn't see. But Elisha was aware. I think we, we need to realize that that God has given us the angels as ministering spirits to us. So what Paul is saying here in Hebrews is the same thing as what Elisha saw there with the chariots of fire all around him. We need to be aware and understand, believe, grasp that we have angels all about us ready to serve, to help, to protect, to guide, well, maybe guide and lead is more by the Spirit of God, but they're here to serve us in any way they can. I imagine some of us, even since our conversion, 
can think of times when we might have been seriously injured or killed even, and somehow, almost, it would seem miraculously, we were preserved. I can recount many times in my life I really should have died, mostly out of my own stupidity and things that I've done. Not always. There have been times when I was doing nothing but sitting in a plane, and I know God preserved me that day. No doubt about it. So, we can recount those things. So could Elisha. He knew. Do we know it? Are we aware that having been called out of this world, God has assigned the angels to take care of us, to be sure that if anything does happen to us, God passes on it. God allows it. It would not happen unless he did. Now, Solomon did say in Ecclesiastes, time and chance happens to them all. Now, he was speaking of mankind in general, but we are in a different category once we're converted, once God opens our mind and turns us to his truth and begets us of his spirit. We are then heirs of the kingdom of God directly. And he is very, very aware of every last one of us. So if one of us dies, it's because God decided that it could happen at that time. Because we have been preserved. And I've seen some who did die, who had at other times earlier in their lives been preserved, who had been healed of various illnesses and sicknesses. But there came a time when God said, okay, I'm going to let that one die now. And he allowed it. But it is not without his saying so, if you and I are to die. Time and chance does not happen to us. Now, we don't know when he's going to allow that with us, but that's his decision. We are his. And he looks after that which is his. But that does not transcend the fact that it is appointed to all men once to die. A few will be changed at the end, but even there, it's a form of death as we're changed from physical into spirit. Uh, that which was physical doesn't exist anymore. So I don't know that, it, that the body dies and drops back to the earth. But it's changed, he says. So it, it's a different type of life altogether. <clears throat> so the angels were there to minister to us the same way they were there with Elisha. So Elisha was not worried. Do we have that kind of faith and trust? But you have to have the knowledge, the understanding, before you can have the belief and the trust and the faith. Because that faith has to be based on a belief, an understanding, a trust, has to be there. So he says, comprehending this, verse chapter 2, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. He says, if you could just envision, just realize what a powerful thing is going on. That we as human beings 
have been given the opportunity to inherit everything. And that God has called specifically a few. Well, he's called many, but choosing a few. 144,000 total. Since from Adam until the Christ time Christ returns in his glory. 144,000 to be in that kingdom as the bride of Christ. And you are one of those. If you have been called and given the Spirit of God. What an incredible thing that is. So understanding we're here to inherit the earth, to reign with Christ a thousand years on the earth, Revelation 5.10. Uh, what, a, what, a, what an incredible understanding that is. John 15, where Christ was speaking to his disciples who were to become upon servants. But a servant doesn't know everything his master is thinking or doing. So he says, I'm not calling you servants anymore. I'm going to make you friends. We need to grasp that that concept includes us. Now, you go through the Old Testament, and you don't find very many times that God called a human being his friend. Moses, Abraham, I didn't look it up, uh, but it was only two or three times that he called somebody his actual friend. And I always thought of that and thought, boy, wouldn't it be nice to be a friend of God, where God could say, that's my friend down there. And I never thought I could aspire to that. But that was before apostles, the disciples, I'm going to call you friends. And in the same context, he talked about uh, his spirit blessing those whom he had called then, and those who would follow after and teach the same things, that they also would be the friends of God. So God very much, in his own mind, his own heart, looks down at you and me and says, I want to befriend that individual. Now, what kind of friend do we make? How faithful a friend are we to God? That needs to be pondered, needs to be meditated on in each of our own hearts and minds. What kind of friend am I? If God looks down and says, I'm calling that one, therefore I want him to be my friend. How often do we think of that? How, how often do we consider it? that he called us to be his friend. And then how much do we carry through? See, it's a responsibility that's laid on us. When a human being says, I'd like to be your friend, then that lays a consequence on us of trying to be a friend in return. It's an offer. It's an opportunity. It's a chance. And you find very, very few of those in a lifetime here on this earth. How many faithful, true, real friends have you had in a lifetime? Not very many. It would be an exceptional thing if you'd had more than 10 or 12. 
exceptional. Most become acquaintances. Most become friendly. We might hang out with them a bit. Then we move or they move or we take a different turn in life even if they're there. And those drop away and then we make new friends or whatever. But how many ever have a friend, even one, like David and Jonathan had a friendship? Where the love between those two men, it says in Scripture, even transcended the love of a man and a woman. As close as a marriage can be between a man and a woman, and there should be the best friend you ever had would have been your mate. But he said that Jonathan and David were so close, trusted each other so much, thought so much alike, and respected one another. And it wasn't a homosexual relationship. People would like to say that sometimes. But no, it wasn't at all. It was natural and right. I don't think if you read about David's life, he was uh, at all homosexual. It wasn't that kind. But it was so close. I don't know that I've ever had friends, other than perhaps my wife, anywhere near that close. I've had a few close friends that I would have gone to bat for no matter what the circumstance was. But it isn't a very long list. I won't reveal how many. I don't know that I could even say how many, but it isn't a very long list. I mean, it's probably not with you either. Not that kind of friends. That's the kind of friend he wants us to be with our Savior, our Redeemer, our older brother. As close as brothers, if you will. That's another analogy he uses. Now, brothers can fight terribly here on this earth, or they can be very close on this earth. And even if they fight among themselves, (laughs) if an enemy from the outside of the family comes, they will fight back to back for each other. So there's a love there regardless. I don't know that we can always talk about siblings on this earth having the kind of love that we should have for the father and the son. But, you know, other friends come and go, but it's hard to get rid of family. Uh, It comes deaths and weddings and such. They get together. And uh, in some cases, it's dysfunctional. In some cases, some families are pretty close. But a family was meant to be very close. It was meant to get along and not be dysfunctional. And that's the kind of loving relationship the father and the son are going to have with those who are in the first resurrection. So very, very close, that it's closer than any brother or sisterhood you've ever seen on the earth. And closer than any marriage you've ever seen on the earth between Christ and his bride. He's going to make his bride the perfect bride. Proverbs 31 and other scriptures. She's not that now. She's making herself ready. So she's not ready yet. And then she even is as ready as she can get in this life. She still has to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye because never will we succeed on this earth in becoming as godlike as is required to be the wife of Christ himself. But that's what we're here to be. 
Revelation 14, verse 4, talks about the first fruits. Christ being the first of the first fruits, and they that are his at his coming. And it says there, of the 144,000, these are the, no more, no less, these are the first fruits. So his bride will consist of 144,000 individuals, and that is all. And they are in the first resurrection. Now, do we have a chance of being that bride? Second Corinthians 11, verse 2. I won't turn back there. I've read it before. But there Paul was referring to the church at Corinth. And by reputation, Corinth was the most immoral, ungodly city around. What would you compare it to today? New York, San Francisco, some of those evil, rotten, nasty places. Corinth had a reputation of being the most immoral, diabolical city around. And he said to the people who had come out of that society, who had been that way, if you will, that he would present them as chaste virgins to Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.2 So the transformation from the ungodliness that Corinth had had was being made in those people that God had called out of Corinth to make them a perfect bride of Christ as first fruits. So it doesn't matter what God has as raw material. You and I Pretty poor raw material. And God can make something of us. Now, do you believe that? Do you believe He can transform you? It's got to be personal. I can understand intellectually how He might come up with 144,000 because I can name some in Hebrews 11 that are already there. Not in the kingdom, but they've already qualified when Christ returns. Abraham and Moses and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and even Hagar. On and on it goes. I know that those disciples and some of those people from the early New Testament church are going to be in the kingdom of God. I know that from those whom he's called here at the end time, that he says many would be called and few chosen. So under Herbert Armstrong, he called... What he terms many, up to 150,000 maybe. Maybe more than that if you consider those who lived and died from the 1930s through today. But the entire population of the church at its greatest size approached 150,000. That included kids and grandmothers and everything else that attended the feast that weren't converted or whatever. So he calls that many. He said, in the end time, many would be called, and few chosen. So out of how many ever, 200, 300,000, I don't know how many he called altogether, he's going to round out the number of 144,000. So intellectually, I can understand that he has called some in this life who are going to be in his kingdom. And I've buried some over the years, or at least said the prayer over them, and helped bury them that I have no doubt in my mind were some of those that were chosen because I saw growth in them. I saw their attitudes. 
Now, they were still human, and they still had problems, every last one of them. But there was the Spirit of God, you can see there. So I felt confident that they would be in the kingdom of God. But now when it gets down to me, sometimes I have trouble with that. You see, I know me more than I know anybody else. And I know how weak and insipid and filthy and dirty and nasty and deceitful and desperately wicked my mind is. I know my light side and my dark side. I know every side. And I even deceive myself about myself. And we all do, to one degree or another. So, how do I convince myself that I can indeed be one of those first fruits in the Bride of Christ? See, there's a hurdle we all have to face. The Christ sacrifice is big enough for us. We might see that it's big enough for James, Peter, Jude, John. We might see it's big enough for Herbert Armstrong or other people we've known. But we bear, as a human being, by nature, a certain guilt, a certain understanding at least, and certainly once we understand God's Word and understand what human nature is, we bear a certain guilt. We bear a certain shame in what we are, not only have been, but what we still are as a human being, subject to idolatry, self-worship, greed, selfishness, lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, you name it, we're susceptible to it. So, I'm sure that we all face, off and on, if not daily, difficulty accepting the concept that even I could be part of the kingdom of God in spite of myself. There has to come to be, within you and me, a strong enough belief a strong enough faith, a strong enough trust that God can deliver us no matter what we have been and are when our change come. We have to believe that enough that we're motivated to serve God with all our heart. Now, how many people that you have known in the church of God could you say, including self, who have served God with all their heart, mind, body, and soul, and not taken anything back for themselves, or reserved certain sin or certain conduct or certain thought patterns to themselves that they are unwilling to give up, depart from, repent of. Not one. Not one has worshipped God to that degree. Now, there may be some who are better prospects than others. I don't know. But God tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and there is none righteous, no, not one. So none of us can of and by himself qualify to be part of the kingdom of God. But we have to somehow come to believe that we can be there individually. 
And we have to believe it enough that it's a motivation to get us to do what we should do and to overcome so that we can have our crown. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne and to give them all the gifts of the Spirit. So you can't sit there doing nothing. You have to be motivated and you have to overcome. He said that to all seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Every one of them. You must overcome. Well, if you sit around and feel sorry for yourself and feel like I can't make it, then how are you going to overcome? You have a very weak dedication and a very weak effort at overcoming because your faith and belief isn't strong enough to motivate you. It has to become that. Now, that's what Paul's trying to get across here, and I'm taking 30 minutes to say what he said here. Well, he, he says it all through this book, but, but what he said, understanding what our goal and purpose and God's intent for us is to become higher than the angels and to be the bride of Christ and the brother of God, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard lest at any time we should let them slip. To let them slip away. To let them get away from us. To get distracted. To get in a selfish attitude. A greedy attitude. A bitter, angry, hateful, hateful attitude toward anyone else, which is not the attitude of God. It's the attitude of Satan. They can't be in the bride of Christ it can't be as a brother of Christ. Didn't he say in Matthew 24, blessed is he who endures to the end. We have to endure whatever we face and count it all joy. The things that we do suffer. Because what do they do? They force us to our knees. They force us to turn to God and serve Him. When others lay trouble on us, or when we bring trouble on ourselves, if we're converted at all, it motivates us to get on our knees and cry out to God and realize that He is the only answer to our troubles. So we should give earnest heed, lest what we have slip away from us. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. What the angels have said has been strong, true, steadfast. And that every transgression and disobedience is going to receive just recompense. The reward of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. It's not like the Protestants think that the law is bad. It's the penalty of the law that is bad. The law is good and holy and just and right, as Paul said. But the penalty of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So it isn't the law that's bad. It's the penalty of breaking the law that's bad. And if we live in sin and continue in sin, the just recompense, we have no gripe, we have no complaint, it's death. 
How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? You've got the world out there who is sinning, and they're going to die. <clears throat> and we, having been given the truth, are going to die eternally if we neglect such a great opportunity and sal- the opportunity of salvation. There are very, very few on the face of this earth who really understand the true plan of salvation and who God is, and who even begin to glimpse the reward that God has for those who will obey Him and serve Him. To become the very sons of God, the brothers of Christ, the bride of Christ, to rule with Him on His throne, to be God. It does say in Scripture, you are God's. That's your purpose. That's the plan for you. You're to become God as God is God. That's the mystery of the resurrection and the change. And we won't fully grasp it until that change come and the mystery of God is revealed and a human being be turned into spirit and become God. We're going to see right here that that is the truth. How can we neglect that? Even for a moment Can we let that out of our sight? Without vision, the people perish. We have to constantly keep before our eyes the reason we're here, the reason we've been called. How shall we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by them that heard him? So Paul had heard it from James, Peter, John, and perhaps even from Christ himself later. But they, they, he knew the eyewitnesses, even though he had not been there at that time. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with different miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Remember Acts 2? When the Spirit came with a rushing wind with tongues of fire, And then even the shadow of the apostles passing over people caused them to be healed. And he did all kinds of miracles and signs and wonders right away after the Holy Spirit came. Those later died out in in power and strength. But he says he's going to do the very same thing here at the end. Signs and wonders. Before the great and dreadful day of of the Lord, Joel 2, Zechariah 2. Zechariah 3 more. Verse 5, For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. So God gave witness that he was going to use the apostles, the converted, to do signs and wonders and miracles. Great things would be done by them. Verse 6, But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Very good logical question. (laughs) When that man looked around and said, What is man, Psalm 2 it is, that you are mindful of him? Perhaps the author of Psalm 2 was David, and he looked around at what he saw. He saw murder, he saw anger, he saw bitterness and hate, greed. He saw the seamy side of human beings, and he even lived it. 
through part of his life. So he thought, what is man? We're born, we come into the world's kicking and screaming and crying and selfish and wanting nana right away, cleaned up right away, and we go out kicking and screaming and maybe wearing diapers and complaining. Mankind, from start to finish, isn't much. Now is he? We're born not controlling either end, and we generally die not being able to control either end. Just the way it is as a human being. So what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visit him, that you would pay attention to him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and that's not a very good rendition. The Greek says, you made him a little while lower or inferior to the angels. Not that we're a little lower than the angels, we're a lot lower than the angels. <laughs> There's no comparison between mankind and the power and the might and the majesty of the angels. No, it was we were made a little while inferior to the angels. Much inferior, but only for a short while. The point being, we're going to become greater than the angels. You made man a little lower, or for a little while, inferior to the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, and did set him over the works of your hands. Now, Christ was made for a little while lower than the angels. And then he was resurrected as the firstborn of many brethren and made much higher than the angels once again. Now, why is this being pointed out to us? Because he's trying to get across to us that we have the same opportunity to sit at the throne of God that Christ has, to reign with Christ a thousand years. Where's that thousand-year reign going to be? Revelation 21 and other scriptures with it. It's going to be right here on the earth with the Father and the Son is the temple of it for a thousand years. And we will be there with the Father and the Son in the new Jerusalem, ruling with him. Now that's set a lot higher than the angels. He even said up here that the angels were here as servants for us, already even, like they were with Elisha there, or with Daniel. You'll put all things in subjection under his feet. Now that speaks of Christ, and it speaks even of us. Did not God tell Adam and Eve that he gave them dominion over everything on the earth? Do whales train us, or do we whale train whales? Or orcas, or, you know, or, or seals, or whatever. God gave mankind dominion over the earth, over the beasts and the fowls. Now, with Christ, he's put everything in a much higher level under his feet. But even us, we're given a certain dominion down here. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. So, Christ was given Dominion, he was given, well, he qualified, once again, 
by defeating Satan to rule the earth. But he's allowing Satan to rule over the earth for a short period of time until Christ returns and takes over reign and binds Satan. So he's qualified to have all things under him, but not yet all things. The qualification is there. The capacity is there. But has Christ really taken over total dominion on the earth? Not a chance. If he had, we wouldn't see all the sin and degradation and wretchedness that we see around us, the abomination that is mankind. No, he hasn't taken charge. He's waiting. He's given Satan a certain amount of time. And when that time is up, Satan will be bound and will not influence us anymore. So while he has been told you are going to rule it all, and you're already in charge of the universe, go ahead and let Satan rule as long as I have granted for him to rule. 6,000 years of man's experience until the Sabbath comes. We'll get to that here a little later. Everything hasn't been put under him. But we see Emmanuel, who was made a little while lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, he had to become human in order to suffer death. Crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. That's an interesting way of putting that. That Christ's death came by the grace of God. We think of grace as a very good thing, do we not? By grace are you saved by faith? Grace is the unmerited pardon of God. It was by the grace of God that Christ died. Christ was an immortal God-being prior to coming to this earth and being born of woman. God put good favor on Christ by letting him die for the good of us. He extended grace to Christ in what way? By letting him bear the sin of all mankind, so that no longer would sin remain. Sin will be swallowed up in victory. Death will be swallowed up in victory when Christ returns. And most human beings, by the grace of God, will ultimately be saved. Not all, but most. So God was granting goodwill and grace by causing sin to be dealt with so that we don't have to die eternally for our own. But we can have everlasting life. Do we understand how his death is grace? It gives us opportunity to live, to give us pardon we do not deserve. He should taste death for every man. His death was bigger than ours, more important than ours. For it became him for whom are all things, for whom are all things? 
everything that was created, the Father oversaw and planned for the sake of the Son. And by whom are all things, in bringing man, many sons to glory to make uh, the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. He learned by the things he suffered. His life was difficult as he walked the face of this earth. He was a man of sorrows, it says. He wasn't happy all the time. He saw sin, degradation. He saw all kinds of sorrowful, hurtful sicknesses and illnesses and how people treated each other. And he was sin-sick, soul-sick, and sorrowful over what he saw as he walked the face of this earth. And he suffered many things of many people, did he not? Didn't deserve it. Never did anything bad toward anybody. And yet he was the most despised human being, probably, who ever walked the face of the earth. Made perfect through suffering. And we are headed toward perfection through suffering, just as he did. So what we go through down here is on purpose. Our nature is on purpose. Allowing Satan to go ahead and rule for 6,000 years is on purpose, that we might be tried and tested to see which way we're going to go, his way or God's way. Everything that's happening down here, trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, is all from God that we might learn. So we don't need to be discouraged and frustrated by the troubles we have, by attitudes people might have toward us or whatever. Be encouraged that God is letting us go through it so that we might learn and qualify to be a part of the kingdom of God. Well, even with the late start, I'm out of time, so we'll stop right there with that thought that Christ's glory was given to us or is being given us since he is the captain of our salvation. And he understands our frame, that we're dust. But we need to accept what he did for us and believe it and grasp that even we can be part of the kingdom of God.